Good morning. Last week, we lit the prophecy candle and remembered those who first spoken the promise of the coming Christ child. The second candle on the Advent wreath is called the Bethlehem candle. It is a symbol of the preparations being made to receive the Christ child. The second reading for today comes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the, of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want to take... Uh... I think every time I'm up here with a microphone, I'm going to take the opportunity to thank the people from NIAC. Uh, again, thank you so much for being here. I, I think, can we give them another hand? Um, I think it's, uh, I think that it's very appropriate, the timing of them being here, not just because it's Christmas. I mean, it would make sense that you're here during the Christmas season doing a Christmas tour. Uh, do you do this in the summer sometimes, too, just to kind of mix things up? It's something to think about. Anyway, no, it's, it's wonderful to have them here um, because I don't know about for you, but I think that, that music is something that it, when it is done well, it can really it can take you to another place. It can kind of um, serve as a sort of haven from whatever challenges and difficulties that you're facing, it can kind of, in one sense, almost help you escape for a little while from whatever challenges that you're facing. And indeed, you know, music that is centered on the gospel and that kind of framework, I think, really helps to anticipate the age to come, gives us a little, a little foretaste of what is to come. And it allows us to kind of, uh, yeah, to sort of block out the, the challenges that we may be facing um, throughout Life, but the reality is, the reality is, is that this is this is going to be over. Uh, and actually, I'm going to kind of take you out of it a little bit right now, so I apologize for that. But but you're, you're, we're all going to go out after this and on Monday, and we're going to go back to to the world, and we're going to go back to a world where I think we very much sense um, that there's a lot of, of problems. Can I just say that that there's a lot of problems? Um, in this world, there may be problems in your own family, in your own life. There, there are problems in our nation. There are deep problems in our nation. 
And unfortunately, um, we, we sort of have to go up there and, and face them. And so the question that, that I'm raising here, and I'm going to try to be brief here, is, is what, as Christians, how are we to respond? How are we to, to carry ourselves in a world and in an environment that is often uh, in, in dealing with all kinds of issues and hostility? Just, just you know, very basically, what is it that we should be looking to do? Today we're continuing in our series called The Story, and the, the basic central premise of this entire series is that if you want to understand any passage of the Bible, you have to understand how it fits into the story, the overarching narrative of Scripture, that the Bible is not primarily a book of timeless wisdom. Um, it is not primarily um, an instruction manual for life. Uh, though it contains all of the instructions you would ever need for life, and it contains um, all of the timeless wisdom you would ever need. But if you really want to get at that wisdom, you have to, in, in any passage, you have to see how that passage fits into the overarching narrative of the story. And of course, what we're kind of reiterating is the story unfolds in these four acts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and we're kind of just going through that story. We've, we've looked at creation. God created the world, created everything good, created us to be a part of the process of making it even better and, and bringing greater beauty and order to creation. Uh, but then the second act, the fall, we fell. We, turn, we turned away from God and decided we'd rather do it our own way um, than according to his way and for his purposes and his, for his glory. And so we looked at that, and then, and then, and then the third act, redemption. Uh, and this is the, the act that most of the Bible uh, really covers, is, is redemption. And God calls a people. He calls Abraham. And he calls him and says, through your people, through your people, the nations will be blessed. I'm going to use you and your people to bring renewal into this world. And so then the, the Bible follows, you know, his story and, and his children. And then, and then, you know, well, Israel, and, and so then the people of Israel. And so we went through that, and we saw some twists and turns in the people of Israel. A, a couple of weeks ago, then we saw uh, in, in the promised land where God, God gives this kingdom, the, the Davidic kingdom. Uh, we looked at, at that passage, and, and we saw this promise that God would give David a kingdom that would never end, and that the, the Davidic kingdom was to, to really to, to model for the world what it would look like if people really honored God, to show the world what it would look like if people really loved God and were obedient to Him and, and followed Him, what it would look like for humanity to, to really flourish, to really be human in the way that they were created to, to, to be. But, of course, as we saw, it, you know, it, it didn't last that long after David was, was made king and they turned away, just like Adam did. They turned away and they started... To, to look to other gods. They looked to other, other gods as their source of hope and source of life. And so last week, uh, we looked at the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and that takes place about 175 years um, after David. Uh, and we saw then they, they turned to, to Baal, and then, and then the passage we're looking at now comes 125 years after that. And the context here is that, is that once again, the people of Israel are not trusting in God. And in, in this particular setting here, it's King Ahaz, the, who's the king of the southern, uh, king of the southern kingdom. If you remember, um, Israel went into a civil war. Right when you turn against God, you turn against one another. That's the way it works. If you turn against God, you turn against one another. And so they turn against God, turn against one another. Civil war. Anyway, so so at this point, we're looking at Ahaz, who's the king of the of the of the southern kingdom. 
And the issue that sets this whole thing up is that he doesn't trust God. Just like they didn't trust God to provide the rain with Elijah, so they looked to Baal, um, here uh, King Ahaz doesn't trust God to protect them. Sort of the irony here is that, is, is that Ahaz does not trust God to protect them um, against the northern kingdom. He's worried about the northern kingdom because the northern kingdom is formed in alliance with another, another group. And, and so what Isaiah wants to tell Ahaz is, hey, look, you can trust God. He's going to protect you. And really what ends up happening is he says no, and he, he makes an alliance with the Assyrians. And, and, uh, and basically Isaiah's like, that is a terrible idea, right? And, and, and of course, uh, Isaiah's right. Discovers it just like if you put your trust in Baal and you look to Baal to provide the rain, it just leads to drought. It leads to destruction if you turn to a god other than, than the real god. And, and similarly here, he's saying if, if you look to this other nation to protect you, actually the very opposite's going to happen. They're not going to protect you at all. In fact, they're going to end up hurting you. And of course, historically, that's exactly what happens. The Assyrians, you know, they destroy the northern kingdom. They, they also damage the southern kingdom. This leads to just, you know, more kind of turmoil Long story short, the, the entire kingdom just gets, gets destroyed over the course of a couple, couple hundred years. And, and this is what, what Isaiah is prophesying in the verses that immediately precede this. He says, distressed and hungry. This is just a couple verses before chapter 9. Distressed and hungry, uh, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their god. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. But that, of course, isn't the whole story. And so Isaiah prophesies about this time in which God will raise up this king. God will raise up this king, and and he he will bring into fruition... This kingdom that was promised to David. And, and, of course, that's what this passage is about. And so he goes on and he describes this king, this Messiah. And we discover some interesting things about this Messiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these four titles that are given to the Messiah, uh, two of them kind of make sense to give to a a human king. Uh, It wouldn't be all that unusual to refer to a king as Wonderful Counselor or even Prince of Peace. Um, But these two titles in the middle, Mighty God and Everlasting Father, this is really bizarre. How on earth can an Israelite actually be referring to a human being with the titles Everlasting Father and Mighty God? And so we see right here, 700 years before Jesus comes, this prophecy about the embodiment of God, God in person, God both human and God, God coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And then the question is, well, what, what, kind, of, what kind of king will he be, right? You know, when somebody gets into office, any kind of leadership is it, well, what kind of leader will they be? What kind of king will they be? And, and these titles, um, it's also instructive how they how they're ordered, um, that they build to a climax. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That this God will be a, a peaceful king. This king will be a peaceful king. And, of course, you go through the ministry of Jesus, and, and you see that peace 
is central to the mission of Jesus. And, and, and so when he heals people, uh, it's not uncommon for him when he would heal somebody. After he heals them, he'd say, he'd say now go in peace. Go in peace. He says that several times when he heals somebody. And, 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 and then when he sends out the disciples, he sends them out on mission. He sends them out. And, and what he tells them, he says, the first thing that I want you to say to people is, 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 is say, peace to this house. Peace to this house. And so we see that peace is central to the mission of Jesus. Uh, and now the, the, the question we need to ask ourselves here is, is what does that mean? What are we talking about when when we talk about peace. And, and, and what, what does Isaiah mean when he talks about peace, the prince of, of peace? And the Hebrew word here in, in this passage is the word shalom. It's the word shalom. And, and what we need to understand about the word shalom is that there is no English word that can really translate what shalom means. That shalom is just, it's much too big. It's much too full. It's much too rich, that the word peace really does not capture the fullness of what shalom is really all about. In fact, it's, it's kind of interesting because if you go through the, the, the Hebrew Bible and, and you, re, or you go through an English Bible and you compare, what you discover is that translators are often confused on how to translate the word shalom, and they translate it differently in different contexts. I mean, just one example in, in the story of, of Joseph, when Joseph is, meets his father, or excuse me, when he meets his brothers... I'm at the end of, of Genesis, and he asks them, you know, how is, how's dad, basically? And they don't know that it's his dad at this point. How is your father? And, and he says, you know, it, what most Bibles say, like what my Bible says is, is he well? Is he doing well? And, and it seems it's, you know, it's just referring, is he healthy? Is he? And the word that is there is shalom. Uh, in another passage, actually, this is even more instructive. I could do a lot of this, but, but in Isaiah 40, uh, 45, so Isaiah himself Using this same word, this is an interesting one. Uh, in verse or Isaiah forty-five, verse seven, God says this: "I form the light and create darkness." And then the NIV in the next part says, "I bring prosperity and create disaster." Now it's interesting. The word prosperity there is actually the word shalom. And what's interesting is, is if you look at like different translations of this passage, I looked at four different translations, all used a different word. One translation, again, this is prosperity. Another one uses the word well-being. Another one uses the word wheel. I have no idea what that means. It's not, a, not W-H-E-E-L, but wheel. And then another, another one uses peace. And so the point is, is that this, this whole concept, this biblical concept of shalom, it's just, it's full, it's deep, and it's rich. So how can we best understand this? I think Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. He describes what what shalom is. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its creator and its savior as its savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Peace, shalom, it's just simply when things are the way that they are supposed to be. 
and so what, what this is saying here is that, is that with the coming of the Messiah, he has come to make things the way they are supposed to be. Now, of course, the question that, you know, you might quickly easily raise is like, okay, well, Kevin, that was 2,000 years ago that Jesus came, and uh, things don't look that great around me. Right? What's, what's going on? I thought you said he came to make things the way they are supposed to be. And there are a lot of answers to that question we could go into, but, but actually, I think that question only comes up, once again, when you read it in isolation. But when you read this in the context of the story, it begins to make more sense. And basically it's this. One of the things that that we have discovered from the beginning of this series is that God's plan has always been to use his people to bring renewal into this world. God's plan has always been to use his people and his followers to bring peace and shalom into this world. And so so when Jesus comes, he doesn't make everything, he doesn't fix everything. What does he do? He makes disciples. You see, he raises up other people because this is still all part of the mission to use a people to bring renewal into this world. Now, now I'm not going to get into this. We're not saying here that we think we're going to fix everything. Like, we're just going to be able to fix everything. I mean, I think the Bible is clear that, that no, things aren't going to be perfect until, until Christ returns and whatnot. But, but that doesn't mean we don't aim and labor to make things the way they are supposed to be. Right? In the same sense, I mean, it's not like you'd, I don't think you'd say, well, you know, I'm never going to be like Jesus until Jesus comes back, so I'm just not even going to bother trying. I'm not going to bother trying to be holy. I'm never going to get there, so I'll just wait till Jesus comes back. I mean, you wouldn't say that. And so similarly, we don't say the same thing here either, that we are called. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that we are called to be ministers of the way things are supposed to be. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean practically? Well, I'm going to put it this way. Well, what does it mean? And and I've been reflecting on this in the last couple of weeks, and I'm going to get really practical for a moment. In fact, I'm going to get so practical that I think it's going to make some people uncomfortable, but hopefully just for a second. Hopefully you'll just be uncomfortable for a minute. What do I think it means for us as Christians living in America to seek to bring shalom into our communities and and into our country. And here's what I think is important. I think that as Christians, we need to help our nation move beyond the incredibly stale conservative-liberal divide that is deeply uh, splitting our nation. We've got to help our country to move beyond this divide. Now, listen, my intention here is is not to get political. It really isn't, actually. In fact, my point would really be completely the opposite. Uh, My point would be that I think for many Americans, we simply see the world through a political lens. That's just how we we see it. We're sort of ingrained to think that way. And so so we we look at every issue and we we read it through a lens of of either conservative or or liberal, right? Because when you talk about politics and you talk about these sorts of things, what are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about, you know, how to make things right. I mean, that's what the, the, hopefully the goal of political issues is. It's, just, it's trying to bring shalom. I mean, that's really what the kind of the idea is, is to make things right. And so the problem is that I think for many Americans, we, we simply read everything through this, this conservative uh, liberal lens. And what happens is in doing so, we miss the fullness 
of the vision of shalom that emerges here in, in Isaiah and throughout the scriptures. In, in fact, to be honest with you, I think some Christians, in other words, maybe another way of saying this is that we need to start thinking biblically, not politically. We need to look at the world through a political lens, excuse me, through a biblical lens, not a not a political lens. In fact, I would even suggest that for some Christians, we read the Bible through a political lens. And so, so, so we actually, we think we're reading the Bible, but we're actually reading it through already a preconceived scheme. And, and we read it in that, instead of looking at politics through the lens of the Bible. Let, let, me, let me put it this way. Let me use an example just to kind of get at what I'm, what I'm saying here. Let me give you a little window into what it's like to be a pastor. Okay, so uh, here's one of the things you discover as a pastor is, you know, you start preaching, you know, through the Bible, and, and, and you know, fairly regularly you come across something like this, shalom. I, I've preached on this very passage before. I've preached on peace before, or, or just even more generally, just, you know, bringing renewal and restoration and you know, all of that. I mean, you find yourself kind of talking about that kind of stuff all the time and charging the church, let's go out and make things right. Let's make things the way they're supposed to be. But the problem is, you know, at some point you've got to get practical. You know, okay, well, what does that actually mean? I mean, what does that look like? And one of the things that I think I've discovered, and I think other pastors would say this is true too, is the problem is that any time you try to get practical, any time you try to cast a particular vision for the way things are supposed to be, you run the risk, you just know, if I go this way, people are just going to say, oh, that's a, that's a conservative vision for or if I go in this direction, there, people are just going to go, well, that's, that's sort of a, a liberal vision for peace. And so, there, well, the, there's only way to avoid it is to just cop out entirely. And here's how you cop out entirely. This is, what, this is what pastors do to cop out entirely, is that when you talk about peace, you just talk about inner peace. You just talk about peace of mind. And you talk about how Jesus came to give you inner peace. And, of course, that's true. He absolutely did. In fact, I would actually argue that that really is at the center of the mark. That's absolutely true. So this is where, you know, you, you quote verses like Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen, Pastor. Amen. Merry Christmas. Let's go home. And that's wonderful. But the problem is that's just not what Isaiah is talking about. I kind of wish it was, but it's just not what he's talking about. This vision for peace is much bigger. It's much fuller. And so the problem is, and as a pastor, if you go to try to apply it in any other way, you end up saying something that anybody, somebody starts, they label that as either conservative or a liberal vision of peace. So let me just give you a couple of examples. So here's one thing that I could do. I said, well, let's talk about shalom. Let's talk about peace. And let me cast a vision for what peace and shalom ought to look like. And so I might say something like this. Christians ought to be at the forefront of racial reconciliation. Christians ought to be at the forefront of racial reconciliation. And, you know, I could turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, where Jesus is encouraging the Israelites to, to love some, those who are ethnically different, religiously different, uh, to love them, to treat them as their neighbors, to love them as their neighbors. And not just those who are ethnically and religiously different, but even those who might even be hostile to them. I, I could go to the book of Jonah, which is even like more like when you really understand that Jonah is not, it's not about just getting swallowed by a fish, right? There's more to it than that. When you come to realize what the book of Jonah is really about is God's telling the people of Israel that they need to have compassion 
on the Assyrians. They need to have compassion, get this, on the very people who are going to come and destroy them. They they need to love those who are different than them, right? And so, I mean, we could go on and on looking at all the different passages. I mean, Paul's whole ministry is just trying to get Gentiles and Jews to come together. I mean, it's all about racial reconciliation. So, so I could preach that vision, and I, could, and I could say, look, Christians need to be on the forefront of racial reconciliation. And I could talk about how, you know, the, the, the issues are still deeply entrenched in our country. It's not like everything got fixed in the 60s or something like that. I mean, that there are still challenges which we face in terms of, of, of reconciling these differences. And I could cast that vision, and you know what happened is that people would think, oh, that's a liberal vision of reconciliation, or liberal vision of peace. Not everybody would think that, but many would, that's what they think. So then I could cast another vision. I could do this. Uh, I could stand up and say, what does shalom look like? What, what is peace? What would it look like for us to, to, to bring shalom into this world? And I could say something like this, that, that Christians should model for our culture the, important of res, the importance of respecting law and order. That we should, we should respect law and order, that we should respect those who govern us. And I could appeal to Romans 13, and that's exactly what it talks about, right? I mean, that, we, that it's true. If you're going to bring shalom and stability into a, into a community, into a nation, you need to have respect for law and order. So Christians need to be at the forefront of showing respect and honor for our leaders, for our law enforcement, for our military, that, that we ought to give them the benefit of the doubt because these are people who are risking their lives in order to provide peace for our, for our community and for our world. And, of course, if I started preaching that vision, everybody would think, oh, well, that's, a, that's what? That's a conservative vision of peace and shalom. Oh, let me give you one more. I mean, I could literally go on with this all day. I'll just give you one more. Uh, how, about, how about this one? So, okay, we shalom, everybody. We want to go out and make the world the way it's supposed to be. Okay, pastor, apply that. What does that look like? Uh, okay, well, how about this? Um, um, I, I could do a whole sermon, um, and the, the title of the sermon could be something like, oh, I don't know, maybe something like focus on the family. I don't know, something like that. It's got kind of a nice ring to it, don't you think? And, and so I, I could talk about, as Christians, we need to, we need to model for our world the importance of family values, that for, it, for society to really flourish, that historically, that this, this, what is incredibly important for any uh, nation to really flourish is really holding on to what sometimes pejoratively are called traditional values, that, that we, need to, we need to really look into that and take this seriously. Marriage between a man and a woman and, and the importance of family, the importance of children, that the children are not an inconvenience. The children are a gift from God, and, and we need to invest in, in, in the family because that's an incredibly central part of what can bring human flourishing. And so, you know, we could do a whole series. I mean, we could do a series on marriage, Right? We could do a whole series on this or, or maybe a whole series on parenting where we look at how to raise you know, children to love the Lord and all of this. And, and that would be a wonderful vision of shalom. And, and everybody would, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a conservative vision of shalom. I could go the other, I could do something else. I could do something like this. I could, I could say, hey, listen, if, if we're going to you know, be the people who make things the way they are supposed to be, well, then, then we, you know, we, we need to be Christians need to model for our society how to show dignity and equality to women. Christians should be at the forefront of modeling what it looks like to respect women, to see them as equal and to treat them with dignity. 
And I could, I could you know, appeal to all kinds of, of passages here. I could talk about where Paul says that in the gospel there's no longer slave or, or free or Jew or Gentile or male or female. I, I could talk about um, how, how in the early church that, that women were flocking to the church because the church was a place where they could actually find the dignity and the equality that they couldn't find in the broader Roman Empire. I, I, I could quote First uh, Timothy 5.2, where Paul says to Timothy, he says, Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And that as Christians, we need to model for our society you know, that, that we need to stand up against sexual harassment and sexual assault, and, and, and we need to be people who take seriously that we can't, we can't minimize this by, by sort of justifying the way people talk. That's just how boys talk. Like, that, that as Christians, we need, to, we need to model for our society. And I could cast that vision, and if I cast that vision, these days people say, well, that's, that's a, a liberal vision of peace. Of course, what's the problem? These are all biblical visions of peace. The problem is we see everything through this political lens, and so we kind of, we kind of play off, you know, you, you, if, well, I can't really emphasize that. I mean, I could believe that, but I can't really talk about that or emphasize that because that doesn't fit with where I am in this whole paradigm. And so, and so what we end, up, we end up doing is we end up just sort of settling for something instead of, and this is the point, this is why we've got to get back to what the Bible says. Because then we can find this incredibly rich, full vision of what shalom really is, is all about. At this point, some of you are thinking, well, this is wonderful, Kevin. This is incredibly idealistic. Right? I mean, come on, really? This is like, now you're going to start telling me, you know, that in in a Christian nation that you know, the Republican would lie down with the Democrat. You know, the, the conservative would lie down with the liberal. I mean, the next thing you know, you're going to be telling me that, you know, in a Christian nation that a wolf would lie down with a lamb and, and, a, and a bear would have dinner with a cow and, and, a, and a, a baby could crawl around the hole of a, of a snake, you know, right? And, right? It's wonderfully idealistic, right? Is that what you're saying, Kevin? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. And you know why I'm saying that? Because that's exactly what Isaiah says, two pages over. Just turn your Bibles. Here we are. I mean, in, in, in Isaiah chapter 9, he casts this vision for the coming of the Messiah, who when, they, when the king comes and he brings peace. And then, and then over in chapter 11, he casts this vision of what this looks like. And this is exactly what he says. He says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will... Eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. Look, if you don't want me to be idealistic, then don't let me preach from the book of Isaiah. As Christians, we need to move back to a really biblical understanding of what peace and shalom is. Let me put it another way. I would suggest to you that the greatest threat to the breakdown of shalom in our country is not secularism or the rise of other religious movements. 
It is a Christianity that has domesticated, has domesticated this vision of shalom and, and, had, and has settled for these sort of half-baked visions of what shalom would look like that the left and the right offer us. Instead of looking at this incredible vision that the Bible provides us with. Friends, we, we need to get back to the Bible. We need to get back to what it says, and, 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 and we, need to, we need to, instead of going to our trusted political sources all the time, we need to get to our truly trusted source. We need to get to that which, when, if, we can, if we can find a way to just kind of forget politics entirely and just start building from the ground up, looking at what the Bible actually says and not reading it already through our political lens, we might be able to model for our country what true shalom might look like. Now, of course, how do we do this? What is it that motivates us to do this? What is it that enables us and empowers us to do this? It's simply this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, in the end, the hope that we have to bring shalom into this world is exactly what we celebrate on Christmas. Friends, I, I, I hope that you have come to know this king. I hope you have come to know the Prince of Peace. I hope you have come to know that whatever it is that you're facing, it's going to be fine. That he's already come, he's already declared that whatever it is that you're dealing with, if you turn to me, if you trust me, again, this is the whole point. Why does does Isaiah even bring this up? Because Ahaz, the king, doesn't trust him, doesn't trust God. And so he's looking to the Assyrians and he's saying, no, listen, you can trust this God. And and we might might give Ahaz a, a, a hall pass because he doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know that the Messiah has come. And, if, if we, and so I do, I do pray that this Christmas season, that you will take this time to really reflect on who Jesus is. And to really reflect on the shalom and yes, yes, the peace of mind that comes from knowing that we have a king that, that left the glory of heaven and came here for you as the song that they, one of the songs that they sing, he came here for me or something like that. Yes, he came here for you. And as we rest in that, may we then go out and show this world a vision of peace that they've never seen before. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for the story of Christmas. God, I pray we would not just go through the motions this year, but that we would really Rest in the reality of who you are. God, give us courage, Lord. As we rest in you, may we be courageous. 
May we not let our society shape and mold our way of thinking, shape and mold our way of thinking about what shalom should look like, to minimize it and make it something less than this grand vision that we see in the pages of Scripture. God, again, it begins with a child that was born, the Prince of Peace. We pray this in his name.